0: Every person, I'm going to start by saying every person who's ever lived has something that's their ultimate truth, the thing that they believe above all other things. Everybody's got that one hill they're willing to die on, and people can joke with you about most things, and people can disagree with you about most things. They can even attack you about most things, and if you're a mature adult, you'll just say, well, you know, that's okay. We can agree to disagree. But that one truth, that one thing that's the most important to you, you'll fight to the death for it, and you won't blink, because that is your ultimate truth. For some people, it's their race, and for some people, it's their country, and for some people, it's their family, and for some people, it's a philosophy or a political ideology. But if you're a Christian, you should really only have one ultimate truth, and that is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, that His death was sufficient to forgive our sins, and He rose again on the third day from the grave. I'm not saying if you're a Christian who gets fired up over other things, more so than about the gospel, that you're not actually saved. I'm not saying that. That's not my call. I am saying that if the gospel isn't your ultimate truth, the thing you think about the most and talk about the most and get the most excited about, then you're not going to be a good defender of the faith. And maybe I should have said that from the beginning of this study, because the truth is, anybody can feed you full of all kinds of information, but unless you have that passion that says, I will go to the mat for the gospel. I will let other things slide. I will will tolerate people on all kinds of disagreements, but when it comes to the gospel, we're going to talk, and I'm going to do my best to defend it. That's what it means to be a defender of the faith. So I'm going to assume that for all of you here and anybody who's listening later on, that, yeah, Jesus is your ultimate truth, that that is the thing that matters most to you. And if that's the case, I want to remind you of something I did say from the beginning of this and several times have said since then, and that is when we are living in a world full of unbelievers like we are and we interact with those folks at work, in our neighborhoods, in our family, they're going to want to argue and debate with you about a variety of things, about science, about sexuality, about political issues and cultural issues. They're going to want to talk to you about the latest story that makes the church look bad, whether it's a, a, a clergyman who's gone off the rails again or some church that's done something disgraceful. They're going to want to bring that up and see what you think of it. And, and what I've been saying along is we need to be able to talk about those things graciously and and wisely, but we always need to set as our goal, I wanna steer you back to talking about Jesus because that's where it really matters. I could convince you, if you're an unbeliever, that, I, that the Bible's right about any of those issues and you still wouldn't be saved. But if I bring you back to Jesus and convince you that He's the Son of God and the Savior of the world, then your eternity changes. So that should be our goal. But that's hard, isn't it? Because Jesus was a real person and He did real things, and those things matter. He wasn't just somebody who taught things that we need to believe. He's someone who did things that make a difference. And if someone doesn't want to believe that He did those things, we're in a tough spot. Because history's not science. I don't know if you've noticed this, but... Uh, you can do experiments to prove that certain scientific principles are true. You knock a mug off of your desk and it shatters on the floor. You've just proved the theory of gravity, right? You've just proved the law of gravity. And no one can dispute that. No one can say, well, I, I, I watched that coffee mug shatter, but I still don't believe that thing, what goes up must come down. No, they would all be convinced. That's how science works. If you can prove it, you can prove it. If you can't prove it, it's not true. But history's different. History is the study of things that happened at a time when none of us were alive yet, and so none of us actually saw these things happen, and so you can't prove to someone that that thing happened if they don't want to believe it. And this is why, to this day, we have people who don't believe that the moon landing actually happened, that the whole thing was faked, right? Or or that 9-11 was an inside job. Those weren't really terrorists in those planes that crashed into the Twin Towers. That was something that our own government did to get us involved in a war. Now, people who want to believe that, you can't prove differently. You can't, because you weren't there. You can't take them. If we don't have... So far we don't have time machines, so you can't climb into a time machine and go to New York City on September 11, uh, 2001, and show them what actually happened. So what can we do? The foundation of our faith, the foundation of our ultimate truth, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And We can't prove that that happened, but we can help people understand why we believe that it happened. We can answer their objections. We can, in other words, we can help them doubt their own doubts. We can get them to the point where they say, I'm still not sure I believe that Jesus rose, but I can understand why someone would believe that. And that's a step in the right direction. See, Christianity is unique among all the religions of the world in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is is that Christianity is based on on a historical truth claim. And that's not true of any other religion. If you don't believe that Moses actually parted the Red Sea, you can still follow the Jewish law, right? You can still, uh, they're reform- you talk to most Reformed Jews and they'll tell you, oh, that stuff in the Bible didn't happen, but I still, I still believe in God, I still follow the law, I still try to be a good Jew. Uh, you don't have to believe that Buddha ever lived to be a good Buddhist. But if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, then the whole thing's a lie. It all falls apart. And that's not me talking, that's the Bible talking. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And three verses later, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. We're all lost. We're all going to hell if Christ is not raised. Why? Because Jesus wasn't, unlike every other religious leader you can name, He wasn't somebody who said... I have talked to God, and this is what you need to do. I mean, even Moses, who we, we believe in, who we believe was real and, and believe everything in the scriptures about him, all Moses did was go up on Mount Sinai and come down with tablets in his hands saying, this is what God says we should do. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't say, let me tell you what God said. He said, I am God. He didn't say, let me tell you the way to the Father. He said, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I'm, I'm the resurrection and the life. You can't, you can't beat death unless you talk to me, unless you go through me. I am, I am what you're looking for. And if he said all that stuff, and by the way, also predicted that he would come back from the dead, and then he died and didn't come back from the dead, you know what that means, right? That means all that other stuff he said was lies. It was bunk. You can toss it all out. And and despite what very, very kind unbelievers want to say, and people of other faiths, like Islam and Judaism, who want to say Jesus was a wonderful prophet, and we revere him, well, then you're not listening to what he said. Because if you listen to what he said, he couldn't be just a good person or an exalted teacher. He was either the Son of God, or he was someone who the world would be better off without. And it all hinges on whether he came back from the dead. Our whole faith hinges on that. And that makes, did Jesus rise from the dead, the most important question in the world. So your unbelieving friends, believe it or not, many of them have already wrestled with this. Maybe not at length. Maybe they they just read a couple of articles online and said, yeah, okay, okay. That says that it's impossible that Christ rose from the dead, and so I, I go with that. But at least they have their arguments. They have their reasons for not believing. So let's talk about some of the reasons they have for disbelieving in the resurrection. In other words, I'm not going to stand up here today, tonight and try to prove to you that Christ rose because I'm pretty sure all of you believe that already. And if you don't, you can talk to me later. But I'm assuming you do. Instead, let's talk about how to respond to the arguments that unbelievers have. So the first one, the most common one, the oldest one is the apostles made up the story of the resurrection. That one's even in the scriptures. Because right after it happened, the teachers of the law, the the leaders of the faction of Judaism that tried to put Jesus to death in the first place, paid off the guards to say, well, the apostles, the disciples stole his body, so he's not really risen. Um, So people today will say, listen, why do we believe a group of people 2,000 years ago who claimed to have seen a resurrected man. Why do we just believe their story without any corroboration? After all, if you believe them, why don't you believe Muhammad when he says he went into a cave and met with Allah and came out with the words of the Quran? Or why don't we believe Joseph Smith when he says the angel Moroni appeared to him and gave him golden tablets and that became the Book of Mormon? Why do we, why don't we believe those stories? And some of them are even kind enough to say, you know, I don't even think that the apostles we're making this up or or just, you know, conning everyone. I think they really thought that they'd seen something. I think, you know, they were primitive people and and they believed in superstitious kinds of things, unlike us contemporary folks that understand science. And, and you know, they were in a lot of grief. They had just lost their leader. And, and maybe one of them or, or more than one had a dream in which they saw Jesus in the dream and they woke up and it felt real. And maybe they talked to the others and they just kind of convinced themselves that it actually happened. That 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 makes sense. And it does make sense, except there are three reasons why I don't think that's a valid argument, and not just because the Bible says so, which is enough for me. But number one, the apostles had no reason to make up that story. No motive, no incentive, no... I guarantee you, if you would have talked to them before the death of Jesus, and said, Jesus is going to die and rise again, they would have said, you don't know what you're talking about. See, what, what a lot of these folks who, met, who, who cling to this theory don't understand, they don't understand first century Judaism. There was, first of all, a belief in a general resurrection at the end of time. A lot of Jews, the Pharisees, and basically everybody but the Sadducees believed that at the end of time, everyone was going to be resurrected and would stand judgment before God. They believed in that kind of resurrection, but there was nothing in Jewish literature or teaching that said, you know, it's possible for one person, if they want to, to come back from the dead before the end. That was never heard of. There was nothing in the expectations of the Messiah that said, well, he's going to die and rise again. They didn't, they didn't think that was going to happen. They didn't predict it. And when it comes to the, to the Gentile world, it was even worse. Because the Gentiles at that time had a belief that the the body was basically useless, an empty vessel that you just inhabit for a while and you shed, sort of like a a, a hermit crab sheds that that shell when it, when it gets a little banged up and moves to another one, or or you could say it this way: to a to a Greek, or a Gentile in the first century, if you were to come along and said, "Hey, do you want to be resurrected?" He'd say, "No, and I don't I don't save my Kleenexes after my, I blow my nose in them either. I mean, it's." Not that they had Kleenexes, but you get my point. Uh, They they didn't see the value in the human body. So, in fact, we see that when Paul is talking to the philosophers in Athens. What is this nonsense about a resurrection? They didn't understand it. So the, the apostles had no motive to make up a story about Jesus rising. It wouldn't have done them any good. It wouldn't have convinced either Jews or Gentiles unless it actually happened. The second reason is, there, we can, we can reject this argument that the apostles made up the story because they weren't the only ones who saw Jesus risen. There were other eyewitnesses. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about as many as 500 people. He says those people are still alive. It's his way of saying, go check with them. If, if you don't believe me, go check them. They're widely known. They're here today. Go talk to them and they'll tell you they saw Jesus risen. See, critics will say, well, you know, the legend of Jesus' resurrection grew over time, sort of like the legend of, of, you know, young George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. Or I'll I'll give you another one from the world of baseball. Anybody ever heard the story of Babe Ruth during the World Series pointing to left field and then hitting a home run on the next pitch? Well, everybody who played in that game said that didn't happen. In fact, I, I love this. The guy who was pitching that day said, and I quote, if that fat monkey would have pointed to outfield, he would have gotten the next pitch in his ear. <laughs> you got love baseball players, right? But the legend grew because lots of people who weren't there thought, oh, that's, that makes a good story. And so people say, well, that's what happened with the resurrection. That that over time, maybe hundreds of years, maybe maybe more than that, people started Heard, you know, Jesus' teachings have lived on. Then it became, no, Jesus actually lived again. And then somebody wrote down stories that put those legends into, into words, into uh, printed pages. And, and then people believed the account, the legend. The problem with the idea that it was a legend is legends take a long time to develop. Legends can be shouted down if anybody's still alive who was there when it happened. So... We believe, we have good reason to believe, that the stories of Jesus' resurrection were circulating immediately. And we know for a fact that the earliest mention of the resurrection in print was about 25 or fewer years after it happened. 25 or fewer. By the way, if anybody's bothered by the fact that there's that gap, just understand, there was no need to write these things down at first because every, they, they started writing these things down when that first generation began to die. Paul's, Paul was the first one to mention the resurrection in print in the, of, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And that was about, like I said, about 25 years after the resurrection itself. Now, just to give you an illustration of how long ago 25 years ago was, how many of you here remember when Princess Diana died? Yeah, it's okay, guys. You can admit that you paid attention. That was 25 years ago, 1997. Now, if, if you turn on the news tomorrow and they were interviewing some guy who claimed that Princess Diana faked her own death and ran away with him and they had a torrid love affair in Tahiti and then she ran away somewhere else, it wouldn't work. Why? Because there's still people who know. Her sons are still alive, her, her ex-husband, for whatever that's worth. Um, you know... Her mother-in-law, for that matter, was lived until a few months ago. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of people who know the truth, and they would all shout that down. If Paul, 25 years after the resurrection, had been writing that Christ was risen, anybody who didn't believe in it could easily have said, no, he didn't. Let me take you to the cave right outside the walls of Jerusalem. I'll show you his body. He's right there. But no one did because the eyewitnesses were there to say that it actually happened. And then the third reason we know the apostles didn't make up the story is because they didn't just tell a story, they changed. They transformed by their own admission that before Jesus died and rose again, they were uneducated, they were fearful, they didn't get it. They were the worst stumbling blocks in Jesus' way. They caused him arguably more trouble than his enemies did. And how can you explain the change that happened to them after the resurrection, unless he was really raised? Because after that, they became the kind of men that changed the world, that turned the world upside down. The kind of men that we've named cities and universities and hospitals after. For that matter, uh, the Gospels tell us that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him during his lifetime. Yet after he died, there they are sitting in church next to their mother, worshiping their brother, who has died and ascended into heaven. Now, if Two things. First of all, as I've shared many times before, I have one brother and I love him and he's he. I admire him in many ways. He's a great dad. He's a great architect. He's a great husband. Uh, I love him. He's not God. And if he claimed to be God, I would be glad to tell him otherwise, right? What would it take for me to believe that my brother is God? What would it take for him to believe that I should be worshipped? And in case you're thinking, well, they didn't really believe it. They were just getting in on the ground floor of something that was going to be big. Let me tell you something. The first days of Christianity, it did not look like it was going to be something big. There were 120 followers in the upper room. That's it. That was the following Jesus left behind. And they had no money, and they were following a crucified man who was now gone off the scene. And so they were were the least likely people to succeed. Saying you're a believer of Jesus at that point was a recipe for disaster, a recipe for persecution, and not for success. And yet, not only did those apostles, not only did the brothers of Jesus, not only did many of those eyewitnesses continue to follow him, but they were martyred for the faith. Not all of them, but many, if not most, died violently at the hands of the authorities or their neighbors or 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 people in other countries where they tried to spread the gospel. And, and you might say, well, big deal. And people have said this to me. Big deal because people die for their religious beliefs all the time. Guys walk into shopping malls and airports and places like that and blow themselves up in the name of their God. What 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 difference does that make? What does that prove? And here's what I say. Yes, people die for what they believe to be true, but no one dies for what they know to be a lie. So a suicide bomber does what he does because a religious leader that he believes in absolutely tells him, son, if you do this, you will go straight to heaven. And he believes it. But the apostles and the brothers of Jesus either knew that Jesus was raised or they knew that he wasn't raised, but nobody told them. They either knew it was true or they knew it was false. And if they knew it was false, why would they die when all they had to say was, it's a lie, I'll tell you all about it, and they would have been spared. They died because they knew it was true, and they knew where they were going. So the idea that the apostles made up the story of the resurrection just can't be bought into, can't be believed. The second story, a second theory is, well, the story of the resurrection was invented later, maybe not by the apostles, but much later by the early church. The way this theory goes, that the early followers, the first followers of Jesus, knew what he was, and they wrote down the stories of how he was a just a, a simple peasant teacher who wanted to make the world a better place and teach people to love one another. And then much later, these religious leaders, these... These evil bishops and preachers got together and, and said, well, you know, we've got we've to make this story more marketable. We've got to put some pizzazz in it. Let's invent some miracles. Let's, uh, let's create a, a story of a resurrection. After all, we've got to compete with all these other gods that have done these fantastic things. Let's create some things that Jesus supposedly did. But there's a problem with that. Three problems, actually. Number one, it ignores the science of, of textual criticism. Now, what is that? All right. A lot of Christians don't know about this, most unbelievers don't know about this, but there's a whole army of scholars who spend their all of their time poring over manuscripts of the Word of God in the original languages, some of them from 500 years after the original and some of them from 1,000 years after and some of them from... 100 or 200 or 80 years after the original. They, they compare and contrast, and they look at, okay, this manuscript of the Gospel of Mark says this, and this manuscript we found 300 years later says that. Which one's the right one? and Okay, this one has this letter, and this one has a, a different letter at the end of that word, and okay, which one's correct? And this is, as I said, this is a full-time job for these people. Textual criticism is what it's called. And you, you can find evidence of this when you, look, when you open your modern-day Bibles... Every time you see a footnote. Have you ever read the footnotes? Most people don't. You read the footnote and it go down to the bottom and it says, you know, some manuscripts have this word instead of that word. That's the work of a textual critic. They've they've seen different manuscripts and they've said, this one looks like the more accurate manuscript. That word is probably original. This word is not, but we're going to put that in there so you know, so we show our work. Now, If that bothers you, it doesn't bother me because what it tells me is, The documents have been examined. If somebody was trying to sneak one in on us at any point in history, they would know it. And by the way, a lot of these textual critics are not what we would consider evangelical Christians. They don't have a dog in the hunt the way you and I do. They're not looking for evidence that the Bible is accurate. They're just looking to see what what the truth is. So in the whole Bible, in the whole New Testament at least, there are two passages that are considered suspect. And you'll see this too in your modern English Bibles. John 8, 1 through 11, and Mark 16, 9 through 20. If you open your, your whatever translation you have, if it's not the King James, it'll have a footnote that says, this passage was not in the original manuscripts. This came in John 8, 1 through 11, and Mark 16, 9 through 20. So... You'll see that in your Bibles, and you'll read it. Now, if you read those stories, what you'll find is, if you read all those footnotes, what you'll find is, nothing is in doubt about who God is, who Jesus was, what Jesus came to do, how you get saved, or any other key doctrine of the faith. So, after the work of hundreds, 100 years or more of textual criticism, we're more confident now than we were 100 years ago that the Bible you read today is what was written down by Peter and Paul, by James, John, by Mark, Luke, Matthew, and all the others. A lot of people don't realize that. And yet, there it is. Second thing, second reason we know that the the story wasn't made up by the church later on is because the New Testament doesn't read like propaganda. If you were making up a story Or adjusting a story. If you had the power in the 200s or 300s AD to change the text of Scripture to fit your agenda, wouldn't you take out some of the embarrassing parts? Like, for instance, wouldn't you change it so that the founders of the religion didn't come off as complete nincompoops like the apostles do? Wouldn't you change it so... It's rather embarrassing to find out that Jesus' own brothers rejected Him. Wouldn't you change that? Wouldn't you change the idea that he was rejected by his own people, and especially by the religious leaders? I mean, if I want to establish that this guy is God in human flesh, wouldn't I want the, the experts on divinity to say, oh, he's absolutely the one? And yet those details are still in Scripture. For that matter, wouldn't you change the way he died? know, the history has, I mean, the, the passage of time has changed our perspective. We don't understand what a what a disgrace crucifixion was. We think about how painful it was, and it was, but what a disgrace it was. It was a way of humiliating a person. No one, I mean, for instance, Roman citizens, no matter what they'd done, weren't allowed to be crucified. So for Jesus to be crucified, that was not seen in the ancient world as a glorious death in any way. So wouldn't you have changed that? Wouldn't he have been more like Socrates who laughed and joked with his friends and then drank that hemlock like it was, you know, Dr. Pepper? They didn't have Dr. Pepper, but they should have. Um, (laughs) And for that matter, if you're a bishop in 300 AD and you, you have the power to change the text of Scripture, wouldn't you take out some of the teachings of Jesus that hurt your ability to become more powerful? Let me tell you what I mean. Wouldn't you change his words or insert words that say something like, don't ever question your spiritual leaders. Instead of things like, the rulers of the Gentiles lured their power over them, but you don't be like that. The greatest among you must be the servant of all. If you're a bishop in the 300s, you don't want to hear that, and yet there it is in the Scriptures. Or when Jesus says, beware of false prophets, you will know them by their fruit. Well, any preacher that ever wanted to get away with anything does not like that scripture because that gives the members of his church authority to hold him accountable and to say, Pastor, you're not acting like a believer. You're not acting like a son of God. And if you were a power-hungry bishop in the 300s, wouldn't you take that out if you're adjusting other things? And yet, it doesn't read like that at all. It reads like an honest record of a real person. And then third, and this is the one I like the most, This theory that the story was invented later by the church, it doesn't explain the rise of Christianity. If you had to, if you put a gun in my head and said, okay, you get one argument for the resurrection, this would be it. I cannot figure out, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why Christianity started in the first place. Because again, it's not like other religions. Every other religion you can explain in the the following way. There was this really charismatic person who said things about God nobody had ever heard before, and people began to believe in him, and then one of two things happened. Either his ethnic group all bought into his teachings, and then as that ethnic group grew, the religion grew with it. Or, everybody bought into his teachings, and then his followers became powerful and began conquering other other nations, and as they conquered other nations, that religion spread because people believed the God of the the nation that had conquered them. That's how religion has spread, except for Christianity. Christianity did not spread that way. It did not start that way. Jesus wasn't even on the scene when Christianity really got off the ground. He was gone. So how did it work? See, the interesting thing is, and this is the thing that's hard to explain, critics of Christianity don't take into account the fact that every one of the early Christians were Jews, and the Jews were a people who had had to be tenacious for centuries, clinging to old, old, old traditions and refusing to change. They had been been conquered, they had been slaughtered, they had been exiled, they had been captured, they had been mistreated for centuries, and yet they held on with dogged stubbornness to the idea that there's one God and we don't work on the Sabbath, And we follow the law of Moses, and yet along comes this guy Jesus, and after his resurrection, thousands of Jews start worshiping on Sunday, when they've always just worshiped on Saturday. How do you explain that? And within months, it spread all throughout Israel. In spite of the fact that the idea of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms to the Jews back then. I mean, there was something in their actual law that said, any man that is hung on a tree is cursed by God. Therefore, Jesus could not have been the Messiah because God had cursed him because he was hung on a tree. The idea that that that, that such a man could be Messiah, much less God in human flesh, that was blasphemy. So how did that idea spread among the Jews? And it wasn't a likely message to persuade Gentiles either because remember, the Gentile world was Rome. And Rome had certain values. Rome believed in strength and in wealth and in power and in uh, sexual promiscuity, unhindered. I mean, here comes Christianity that preaches humility and sexual purity and compassion and monotheism, that there's only one God and not many. How did those kinds of doctrines spread? Unless something happened, unless something supernatural occurred, unless the early people, the early followers of Jesus could say he's alive and give proof. So I give you two quotes, they're not in your notes, but Luke Johnson is a New Testament scholar from Emory University in Atlanta, and he says some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate the kind of movement that earliest Christianity was. N.T. right? British scholar says, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. All right, so there's a third, third alternative argument that you'll hear sometimes, and that is, okay, why should I accept a, natural ex- a supernatural explanation when a more natural one exists? So sometimes unbelievers will simply say, you can give me all the evidence you want, but the fact is, it's harder to believe in a resurrection than it is to believe these alternative explanations that don't require miracles. One guy put it this way, If tomorrow I can't find my car keys, I'm not going to assume that they magically sprouted legs and ran away or got you know zapped into outer space by aliens or just disappeared off the face of the earth. I'm going to assume there's a natural explanation like maybe I dropped them when I was getting out of my car last night and they're outside or or maybe my wife or my kid borrowed my car and they haven't given me the keys back yet. But I'm not going to assume something supernatural when there are natural explanations. And when people say that to us, what they're implying is, see, the difference between you and me is, I'm logical. You're superstitious. I believe in facts. You believe in fairy tales. So what we need to say to them is, listen, I agree with you that it's hard to believe. I agree. I've never seen a dead man rise again. You've never seen a dead man rising. Nobody alive today has seen a dead person rise again. And, and I'm not talking about those near-death experiences that we read about or see in the news. I'm talking about somebody who was dead for days and then they came back to life and people saw him. I understand why that's hard to believe because it's never happened before and it hasn't happened since. But I believe that there is a God and almost all of humanity since the beginning of time has believed that. And if God exists Don't you agree that if God exists, that he would be able to raise a dead man to life? And if your friend is intellectually honest, they'll say, well, yeah, if God exists, he could do that. And you can say, well, that's what I believe. That's that's all I'm saying. I'm saying that God had a purpose for raising Jesus from the dead, and I believe that's exactly what he did. Just because it's hard to believe doesn't mean it didn't happen. And then there's a, a fourth one, and you're gonna some of you are gonna shake your heads when you hear this one because I did when I first heard it, and that is the argument that says, well, Jesus never existed. Again, I heard this for the first time, actually read it because I was on an internet message board and talking back and forth about theology, and and a guy came on and just said, yeah, Jesus wasn't real, he never existed. It was it was a bunch of mystery religions back in the ancient world that had these stories about gods who who died and then came back in other forms, and, and some Jews heard that, and they made up a story about a god who died and rose again, and, and they put it in print, and it became a religion. And there's not a lot of people that believe this, but it's out there. You can find it easily on the Internet. I I did a lot of reading of Internet's, of, of atheist sites, uh, just hearing what do they say about the resurrection? What are their reasons for rejecting it? And this came up more than once. And as I read it, it seems to me it's almost an admission. It's almost them saying, you know, that story story really is hard to refute because they know if Jesus had been a real person who died and then stayed dead, there would be no Christianity. They recognize that. They're honest enough to admit that. So how did Christianity start? Their answer is, well, he wasn't a real person, but somewhere down the line, hundreds of years later, people made him up and... We're convincing enough to make people believe it. I don't know if you'll ever run into this, but I want to give you a, a resource to use. I don't I mean I want to tell you about a resource to use. Tell your friend about a guy named Bart Ehrman. He is a historian and a professor at University of North Carolina. He's also an atheist. He is no friend of the church. He's written numerous books and articles and done speeches and debates in which he's doing his best to destroy the credibility of the Bible. But he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? in which he shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus really existed. I only tell you that not so you'll run out and buy it. I don't suggest you read it. You probably don't need this book. I'm just saying if you've got an unbelieving friend who says, I don't think Jesus ever lived order them a copy of this book and say listen this isn't me talking this isn't some preacher talking this is an unbeliever talking jesus was real now we're uh, yeah we're about 40 minutes in 35 40 minutes in and some of you are probably thinking this is really depression depressing because we're talking about all these negative arguments and how we can refute them isn't there anything positive we can say isn't there any way we can persuade them that it's true and my suggestion for what it's worth is the best thing we can say to someone in this case after we've heard their arguments, after we've let them speak, after we've listened respectfully and given a, a good answer is just say, okay, I've listened to what you had to say. Now do this one favor for me. Just for a minute, I want you to imagine that it's true. Imagine Jesus really rose from the dead. What would be, what would be the case if that happened? Now the reason I say that I remember reading an interview some years ago with a prominent atheist, and he admitted something I found very interesting. He said, not only do I not believe the Bible is true, I don't even want it to be true. He said, I don't want the universe to work like that. I thought that was very telling and very honest. And I think if we put ourselves in the shoes of some of our unbelieving friends, we'll realize they are very emotionally invested in unbelief as invested in unbelief as you and I are in our faith in Christ. Remember, if you've been with us since the beginning, uh, you might remember this. If you haven't, this isn't going to make any sense. But at the beginning of this study, I told you about the, the metaphor of the of the rider and the elephant, and talked about how we all think that we're rational people, and every decision we make, we sit down and we look at the pros and cons and, and measure every argument by what makes the most sense. But we're not really that way. We're really emotionally driven. We have emotional reasons for holding on to the things that we find important. And so, for atheists, for unbelievers, they don't want Jesus to have risen. Because if Jesus is risen, then a lot of people they really can't stand are right, to put it frankly. A lot of moral codes they think are very primitive and backwards are actually the way we ought to live. A lot of doctrines they think are foolishness are actually the truth. There really will be a judgment at the end of time. There is a real hell. There are lots of things that unbelievers don't want to believe, but if Jesus is risen, they have to. And so this idea that... Uh, that Christ is risen, they not only don't believe it, they don't want to believe it. And so our our arguments are going to be hard for them to accept because they're emotionally invested in unbelief. So here's what I'm saying. Walk them through the implications of a resurrection, things they've probably never considered. Show them why the resurrection of Jesus is actually good news. Tell them, say, listen, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that means... That there really is a God and that He loves us enough to die for us and He's powerful enough to defeat death. That's good news. I don't care how you, how you paint it or, or how you score it. It means that death is not final. It means that our bodies, yeah, they're falling apart in this life, but there's a new body coming for you and for me. A body that'll never die, that'll never get old, that'll never be injured, that'll never get sick. It means that, that your life isn't meaningless that every human being was created in the image of God, and they matter eternally. It means that every injustice you see in the world will someday get justice. Everything that's not fair will be made fair, and everything that's evil will be punished. It means, it means that the things that we find sad will come untrue. So what you do, I think, is you say, listen, do me a favor, take an hour, and read one of the four Gospels. Just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And when you get to the end of it, ask yourself the question, do you think the world would be a better place if someone like Jesus was in charge of it? If someone like Jesus had absolute power to impose His will on humanity, someone just like Him, do you think this world would be a better place to live? I think if they're honest, they'll, re- they'll say, well, yeah. And you can say, that's exactly what I believe is true. Now, don't you see why I believe in the resurrection? Don't you see why you should want it to be true? Even if you don't believe what I believe, don't you hope that I'm right? Now, okay, I've given you a lot. I I admit that's a lot to digest. And there's probably some of you who are thinking, there's no way I could say all those kinds of things to people. I I I don't have the brain power. I'm not eloquent. But let me be a little harsh with you for a moment, okay? We're all experts on something, aren't we? All of us. If you're an engineer, you can, you can talk about equations and the ins and outs of, of whatever you're working on until everybody's eyes go glassy. Uh, if, you are a, if you are a mechanic, you can talk about engines and the functioning of, of, of moving parts. If you're a baseball fan, you can, you can recite statistics of players that died 100 years ago. If you're a political junkie, you can tell me who's running in every race that's coming up in two years and who I should vote for and why. If you're a certain age, you can tell me endless stories about your grandkids. If you're a mom, you can tell me the details of your children's bathroom habits. (laughs) But if the resurrection of Jesus is your ultimate truth, you should be able to talk about it. You should be able to, you should be not just able, you should be eager to talk about it. Everything I've said tonight, you should be able to incorporate that, if it's useful. If what I've said tonight doesn't help you win somebody over, discard it, but you should have your own arguments. This should be something you're eager to talk about and you're good at talking about it. And if not, if that's not how you feel, if that's not your reality, Pray about it. Because again, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying you need revival. I'm saying you need to grow. And that's what God's all about. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, we call upon you right now to transform our hearts and to equip our minds. Lord, make us good representatives of you. You know the the people we're dealing with in our own lives right now. You know the people we'll meet in days ahead and years ahead. Lord, prepare us for those conversations. I pray that we would, we would be more excited about the gospel, about your death and resurrection and your return, than we are about anything else. And Lord, if, we, if we're honest with ourselves and see that there's something else that we get more fired up about and would rather talk about and debate, revive us, O oh Lord, and, and put, put the gospel first in our hearts. Lord, show us, give us wisdom to lead people to you, For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.